Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are doing well, and for those of you who live in the United States, um, I hope that all of you are having a good uh, Labor Day holiday. Uh, It is hard to believe that today, not so much just being Labor Day, that today represents the uh, first full week of uh, September. So when I was on the air last with you guys, it was still in the month of August, but we were wrapping it up, and now we are into the start of a new month. So it'll be interesting to see what uh, September brings. And it is hard to believe that uh, for those of us who are big sports fans that uh, college football is now uh, back in session. So there's always a lot to look forward to, not only at the end of August, but the start of September, especially when it comes to uh, sports, you know, like college football, for example. And, of course, professional football is just around the corner. I'm certainly hoping that my uh, Pittsburgh Steelers are going to do a lot this year. Uh, Kenny Pickett, uh, for those of you who are big Steelers fans, he really uh, had a good second half of um, his rookie season last year, and hopefully he will be able to take the momentum that he's uh, gotten from uh, preseason um, into uh, the regular season, which uh, kicks off uh, this Thursday. But, of course, um, our Steelers uh, begin their season uh, next uh, Sunday. So uh, I'm hoping that uh, somewhere down the road in the foreseeable future that my Pittsburgh Steelers will be able to win a seventh uh, Super Bowl. So for those of you who are like me, ardent Steeler fans, uh, we can definitely say that we breathe uh, black and gold the whole way. But what I do know is that uh, – We uh, have a lot of ground to cover, like we always do, uh, regardless of the uh, podcast uh, segment uh, topics that we are uh, discussing or uh, partaking in. I do know that in this uh, particular uh, podcast segment episode, uh, this is the end, believe it or not, folks, of what is uh, part one. Uh, This book that we are uh, discussing, uh, Being a Signal Victory, the Lake Erie Campaign, 1812-1813, is comprised of two parts. And this uh, episode that we will be into uh, is the uh, final part of uh, part one. And uh, when I'm on the air again next, we will be into the uh, beginning stages of discussing about uh, part two and what lies ahead. So for those of you who have been uh, listening to this uh, series since we first began, many of you are beginning to wonder how do we uh, wrap up things with uh, part one before going onward. Well, I can tell you this much. We will be uh, learning in this uh, episode about um, whether or not Commodore Isaac Chauncey, as well as uh, Master Commandant Oliver Hazard Perry, if they faced uh, issues uh, similar to what... uh, British commander Robert Harriet Barclay faced with regards to uh, finding uh, skilled workmen to acquiring adequate supplies. We will also learn um, as to uh, whether or not uh, the selection of Presque Isle Bay was in fact the United States Navy's top choice for building Lake Erie's uh, vessel fleet. Uh, We will also uh, learn about uh, whom became the uh, chief agent, or I should say guru, for bringing all the necessary supplies and arms from uh, Black Rock uh, to Erie. And we will also um, find out um, whether or not, um, we'll also uh, learn as to what problem that both um, American uh, commander, or I should say Commodore Oliver Perry, and that of uh, British lead commander Robert uh, Barclay faced. In other words, 
what similar problem did they face in the last half of uh, summer of 1813. Uh, we will also uh, find out about um, issues that um, Commodore uh, Perry faced come mid-July of 1813. I think it's fair to say that, you know, it's so easy to be caught up in, it's easy to be caught up when the actual battle itself took place, like the day of the battle. But we often forget about all of the necessary preparation work that goes into a battle. There's so much uh, behind-the-scenes stuff that most of us were probably never taught years ago in the um, standard 101 textbooks when learning about the Battle of Lake Erie. But that's why you um, can go to um, a museum, for example, like up in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania. They have the uh, Maritime Museum there. I haven't been there, but I would like to visit uh, the Maritime Museum in Erie where uh, they will tell you how, more about uh, behind the scenes, about uh, the work that went into building uh, Perry's fleet that um, and leading up to uh, the Battle of Lake Erie that occurred on September 10th of 1813. Now, of course, when my wife and I were in Ohio at Putten Bay, um, not only did we go up to the top of the uh, Perry Victory Memorial, which was you know breathtaking onto itself, uh, but we did get to uh, visit the museum inside and that told us uh, a great story uh, about the, not just the battle itself, but what led up to the uh, battle. So there's more than uh, one location for, uh, for the Battle of Lake Erie. Uh, obviously, you can go to Erie, Pennsylvania, but I also strongly uh, recommend visiting South Bass Island, uh, which is where uh, Putten Bay is, where you can actually learn uh, more about this uh, battle. And I will say that uh, in the next couple of uh, segment uh, podcast segment episodes, we will uh, definitely be uh, discussing um, the actual um, battle itself, like the day that the battle takes place. So, I mean, we are pretty much getting to that point. But I do believe it's time uh, to get the show on the road with our first uh, leadoff question for this uh, segment episode. So here we go. Was the selection of Presque Isle Bay the United States Navy's top choice for building Lake Erie's vessel fleet? What do you all think? Do you think that the selection of Presque Isle Bay was, in fact, the United States Navy's top choice for building Lake Erie's vessel fleet? Believe it or not, folks, the answer is no. I know some of you are thinking, well, if the answer is no, then why did we get why did we decide to still go with Presque Isle Bay? Well, Presque Isle Bay was chosen largely in part because of the Army's inability behind securing Fort Erie long term as a means of uh, not following up with their victory come mid-1813 along the Niagara River during the uh, Niagara Campaign. Now, I know uh, some of you are thinking, are we going to talk about this uh, failure and all that? I wanted to, but I will have to admit that for time constraint purposes, I felt that um, in order to get what I needed to um, relay to you all, that needed to uh, take precedent over the um, over what had um, been a um, fallout along the Niagara River. So in other words, we had success. It was a partial, or I should say real quick, short-term success. But we simply were not able to secure or hold on to Fort Erie long-term uh, what I do know is that there was uh, some miscommunication there. In other words, it was one thing for us to have uh, secured Fort Erie 
but there were some other steps that were not taken as a means of backup to where had those steps been taken, then uh, being able to secure Fort Erie long-term not only would have been to our advantage, but perhaps um, a different location for for, uh, building the U.S. fleet would have... um, would have happened and who knows what the outcome on one hand one could say well who knows what the exact outcome might have been so that's always that could always be something uh for debate purposes but but it just so happened that our inability to uh, secure Fort Erie uh for long-term purposes um that led to this change and um having to go with uh plan B and that is uh Presque Isle Bay now, um, I know that I've mentioned before about Black Rock, uh, just outside of Buffalo. There were advantages that Black Rock had over um, Erie, Pennsylvania, or I should say Presque Isle Bay. Although Black Rock, being just outside of Buffalo, did have better means behind serving as a logistics support station to giving Commodore Chauncey uh, broader authority over Lakes Erie and Ontario, Presque Isle Bay is chosen as the premier naval building site given it had more means for adequate protection as a natural harbor on the United States side of Lake Erie. So remember folks, four of the five Great Lakes uh, are not both, they are on the United States and Canadian side. There's only one one of the Great Lakes that does not even go into Canada, and that's Michigan. So Lakes Erie and Ontario are both, you know, not only are on the United States side, but on the Canadian side. But it turns out, folks, that Black Rock, even though, yes, it may have had the may have been a better um, place in terms of a logistics support station. And yes, Commodore Chauncey, or I should say Commodore Isaac Chauncey, would have had broader authority over Lakes Erie and Ontario. Black Rock, though, did not have um, adequate uh, protection as a natural harbor. So, yes, there were there were some politics involved in this decision, most notably with um, merchant um, sailing merchant um, or sailing master merchant Daniel Dobbins being the one who went um, in uh, who was down in Washington from a previous uh, podcast episode. Uh, he was in D.C while Commodore Chauncey and um, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott were up north trying to um, trying to uh, basically persuade Washington or officials in Washington that, hey, Black Rock is the best way to go. But uh, government officials don't see that in Washington. They actually give Master uh, Daniel Dobbins uh, the right to select uh, Presque Isle Bay as the uh, top choice for building the fleet. So... So there's the politics in it all right there, folks. Now, New Year's Day of 1813 saw Commodore Chauncey visit Erie, Pennsylvania. And there is good news to report, folks. We can actually put politics aside. Commodore Isaac Chauncey is very pleased with what he sees come New Year's Day 1813 during his visit to Erie, Pennsylvania. He goes about approving the choice for building a large two-masted square-rigged ship, a.k.a. brig, on Lake Erie prior to his eventual return back north to Sackett's Harbor, New York, uh, which is, you know, on Lake Ontario. So 
this definitely gives um, those whom are already stationed in Erie a lot of confidence, knowing that, okay, despite whatever differences we had with where, with where um, the uh, fleet of uh, vessels was going to be constructed, we now know that uh, Commodore Isaac Chauncey has put some feelings aside and agrees that this is a better um, spot for, uh, for our naval uh, flotilla, a.k.a. fleet, to be constructed. So what I found interesting about Commodore Isaac Chauncey is that it's not just um, a matter of one thing that he's focused on. In other words, okay, I'm, in other words, yes, I've agreed that Erie, Pennsylvania or Prescott Isle Bay is where the ships need to be built. There has to be a lot of other work that's got to go into making sure that our ships get built in a timely manner and our ships are safe and sound for navigating Lake Erie's waters. But there's going to have to be a lot of logistical work behind this. So what does Commodore Chauncey do? I found this interesting. He goes about implementing a chain of instructions regarding mechanics and supplies to Erie, Pennsylvania, but they are from places that are either not too terribly far from Erie or they are a little bit further, but more so in the opposite direction. So I think of, you know, New York State, uh, southwest, the southwestern part of New York State uh, borders Erie, Pennsylvania. So when I think of uh, places in southwestern New York State, I think of, you know, Jamestown, Dunkirk, Hamburg, uh, Fredonia. But I also think of ju uh, places just north of uh, the places I mentioned in southwest New York State that are not still not far from Erie, being most notably uh, Buffalo. So there are places in New York, um, a, a whole host of uh, places in New York that don't have to be like smack dab near Erie, but they have enough uh, navigable access for waterways where they can transport these goods by water down to Erie where construction can take place. Not just construction, but, um, but all the other necessary steps behind, um, behind the uh, greater task of building the fleet. How about places like Pittsburgh and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania? Now, I know Philadelphia is surrounded by water, um, but Philadelphia also is not far from the Atlantic Ocean. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is 130 miles south of Erie, but Pittsburgh you know, has those three rivers, the Ohio, Monongahela, and Allegheny River. So, yes, sometimes we think of, you know, when we hear of some places being uh, depot hubs, for, uh, for where goods are being made and where they eventually have to be transported to. Sometimes we think of those places as perhaps being the last places on our list. But believe it or not, they do serve as vital hubs, not only for east and west, but north and south in terms of getting to their final destinations. So uh, for Major, um, not for Major, but for Commodore Isaac Chauncey, he goes about ordering such um individuals as George Harrison, Philadelphia's naval agent, to send six months' worth of supplies for 250 men at Presque Isle. James Sackett, who was a sailmaker from New York, and I often wonder if he was uh, by any chance related to Augustus Sackett, for whom Sackett's Harbor is named after, but uh, James Sackett, whom was a sailmaker from New York, 
He was instructed by Commodore Chauncey to leave for Erie come late March of 1813 with strong numbers of workmen whom would go about making sales regarding all six vessels under construction or a building status on site. Uh, this is a phenomenal blueprint, but it's one that has to be done because if Commodore Chauncey doesn't lay out this blueprint, then how is he going to be able to uh, see to it that that the work not only gets done, but all the other proper resources are put into place. We have to remember that we don't always have all of our resources in one location, but resources do have to come from other spots where, say, goods are more uh, readily accessible. There might be more demand for these goods to be built in certain um, other uh, localities or just other cities, but they all can't come from one spot where work can just be done overnight and we're all good to go. It's wishful thinking, but it just doesn't work that way. Uh, real quick, I uh, don't mean to get off track, but I know when I was on the air last time, I had mentioned about a fellow named Thomas Jessup who um, took, who, he was stationed along Cleveland, Ohio, and that was one area that really concerned um, military officials that the British could have uh, launched a surprise attack on just west of Erie. I had thought for a long period of time that uh, Jessup, Maryland was named after Thomas Jessup. It turns out that um, Jessup, Maryland is not named in honor of Thomas Jessup. It is named after another uh, fellow um, prominent Marylander named uh, Jonathan Jessup, whom um, had a uh, vital uh, part with uh, establishing the uh, Baltimore and Ohio Railroad that um, that lasted up until the late 1950s. So for those of you who are wondering how Jessup, Maryland got its name, um, think of the rail industry and think of Jonathan Jessup uh, for the uh, B&O, Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. So um, the next question I have uh, for you all is the following. Did Commodore Isaac Chauncey, including Master Commandant Oliver Perry, face similar issues involving skilled workmen to acquiring adequate supplies, just like British commander Robert Harriet Barclay faced? Turns out the answer is yes, but despite whatever obstacles Chauncey and Perry faced, their master shipbuilder in Noah Brown got the job done as his focus revolved around speed versus finding, or I should say, choosing the proper selection of wood types. So the uh, British... Um, Command uh, the British um, sail uh, master, uh, being uh, William Bell, was deeply concerned about the um, proper selection of wood types in order to um, go about seeing how his um, flotilla would be constructed, most notably with HMS Detroit, uh, the flagship of the uh, British uh, flotilla that will uh, make its um, presence come. Uh, September 10th of 1813. But as for Noah Brown, he's more concerned about speed. In other words, I want to see us, yes, build quality vessels, but we need to get these things done in a timely manner. And as for the wood, well, as long as the wood is sound, as long as the wood is is of uh, proper quality, then we're fine. But we don't need to spend hours on hours trying to debate and um and go about determining where are we going to find the wood that's going to be best for the ship. In other words, yes, looks are great, but 
but oftentimes getting things done yes you want to make sure you get things done um, smoothly and properly and you take the time to get it done right but you also want to make sure that you take the time to get it done right when you are in a crunch because you don't always get to have um, you, you don't always get to have do things on your own time you've got to do things um, in a very uh, speedily manner so think of all this work on the United States side with their vessels it's like being on an assembly line uh, whom became the chief agent, or I should say the, the guru, for bringing all supplies and arms from Black Rock to Erie, Pennsylvania? Well, it was none other than sailing master Daniel Dobbins. Dobbins, however, as brilliant of a man as he was, he did have concerns. And these concerns were um, rightful concerns, uh, justifiable. He was deeply concerned that he might get taken or caught by British forces with, um, with just about anything, like such as essential supplies uh, or just being out on the water to where if he was spotted, then perhaps the, uh, the greater uh, well-being of the uh, United States Navy, including its um, ships, would be vulnerable to a surprise enemy attack to where if the ships sustain damage, then we might not have a Navy that can uh, go head-to-toe in the foreseeable future with a battle that's uh, looming away, or that's looming just around the corner, I should say. So how did... Um, well, I could tell you this much about um, Master Daniel Dobbins. Uh, he wasn't paranoid, he wasn't schizophrenic, but his fears and concerns were uh, rightly uh, justified, as I mentioned a moment ago. And how did he go about modifying the problems? Well, during the daytime, folks, he did not show his mast for fear that if the enemy went about finding his position along Lake Erie's um, American shoreline, that they could uh, go about launching a surprise attack, where if one or two ships get damaged, then it has um, greater tendency to disrupt the uh, well-being of the other uh, ships. So, yes, it would be best uh, not to always do all of your work during the daytime. And during nighttime, you, I know it sounds crazy, but at nighttime you probably do have a little bit more protection than you would during uh, broad daylight. Other source of arms in the form of supplies did come from Pittsburgh. Details towards uh, construction's end concerned Oliver Perry greatly you know, the last stages, which would have entailed uh, sails, rigging, ammunition, shot, anchors. The final week of July 1813 saw everything that Perry was concerned about now be resolved. Vessels rigged, vessels being rigged, guns mounted, anchors gathered to sails being finished. You know, everything is now it's on the proper path. Everything is getting done like it should be. And yes, these last um, hurdles or last stages, it's like make it or break it, basically. Are they going to be ready to go? Uh, because, you know, before we know it, a battle's going to take place. But we also need to make sure that these um, last um, steps where, say, the guns being mounted, 
we need to make sure that when we drop our anchor, is our anchor going to uh, be secure? Is it going to keep the ship um, secure from a float to where, you know, nothing goes wrong internally where uh, sections of the ship start break breaking and people's lives are in danger? So it, it, it's a lot to take into consideration. Uh, during the last half of the summer of 1813, what problem did Oliver Perry and Robert Barclay face? Both commanders, or I should say naval commanders, had problems involving the overall number of personnel crew operating their vessels. Now, prior to Robert Barclay becoming commander, Captain um, William Mulcaster, Mulcaster offered the Lake Erie he was offered the Lake Erie Command. You know, I think we often forget sometimes that other people get offered a position before, um, and then we, of course, we assume that the person whom we've learned about the most was the one that got offered it the whole time, but, you know, we have to be reminded that no, other people were offered first before, say, uh, John Smith, just as a fictitious name, but uh, but we do have to be reminded that sometimes uh, the uh, we call it uh, the offerings don't always come to that first person whom we're familiar with. So yes, somebody else was offered the Lake Erie command being Captain William Mulcaster, but he declined the post. Why did he decline the post? It was because uh, Sir James Yeo did not provide enough help in the form of sending sailors. In other words, had S Sir James Yeo provided um more sailors or provided a, a modified number of sailors to, say, Captain William Mulcaster, we might have been looking at a different story. In other words, we, have to, we might have to ask ourselves, would Captain William Mulcaster have been a better officer than, say, Robert Barclay? But this is a warning that Barclay should have heeded. Just after his arrival at Amherstburg in early June of 1813, uh, Lake Erie unit crews comprised of 268 men. That seems like a lot of men, but it could be a lot higher. About 40% of the men are Canadians. 40% are from the 41st Regiment of Foot. 20% are from the Royal Newfoundland Regiment. When uh, Robert Barclay arrived uh, to Amherstburg, he only had 25 sailors with him, folks. He came from uh, Lake Ontario. You know, one might think, oh, 25 sailors might be a good start. Well, yes, it is, but it's not the grandest number. To me, a good number would be at the starting point of 100, but I think to me what would be grand, or I should say grander, is if you had, if, if say, Barclay had 200 sailors or more with him upon his arrival to Amherstburg. So, uh so, yeah, only 25 sailors arrived with uh, Robert Barclay from Lake Ontario, and he would have needed twice the number for manning the entire British fleet. So if there's only a total of 268 men and you need twice that number, you've got to double it, folks. So Robert Barclay would have needed just over, he would have needed a total of 530 uh, men altogether to be able to man this uh, British fleet at full maximum capacity. 
However, the Canadians, there is some good news to report. The Canadians are far more experienced within the provincial marine. Although they are experienced, uh, there are some things they are lacking in. Uh, gunnery experience. And had um, the minimum number of sailors ready to operate smaller ships. So, yes, 40% of these um, of the 268 men are of um, are Canadians, and that's great. They did have the minimum number of sailors that could have operated the smaller ships. But what it really comes down to are the larger ships. Yes, the larger ships may be the minority, but you need you need uh, sufficient numbers of men to arm those ships because those ships, what we call the sloop of war ship, the sloop of wars. We call the um, the actual warships the granddaddy of them all. Yeah, you need at least well over 100 men at most to be able to um, operate those uh, vessels, uh, given that they have uh, multiple cannons. They've got cannons from all directions. Uh, you've got three masts. Uh, you've got giant masts, to say the least, per the sails. So, so yes, it's great to have uh, smaller Ves the smaller vessels be equipped with necessary men, but the, for the big guys, the uh, sloop of wars, that's where it really matters mo more so. Uh, here's another question. Which other British officer shared Lieutenant Barclay's worries regarding the shortages of both officers and sailors? How about Colonel Henry Proctor, who's over at Fort Meigs right now? Late August of 1813 saw... Colonel Proctor and Lieutenant Barclay both agree to avoid sending the available naval unit into combat given ships available did not meet the maximum nor minimal staffing, number, staffing numbers. September 5th of 1813, Lieutenant Barclay did receive 36 officers and men from a troop ship. Uh, a troop ship is a ship for uh, transporting soldiers. This troop ship was known as the Dover. But this was still, uh, even though, yes, he may have gotten 36 officers and men and all, that's, that's a good start. He's still well short of the 300 maximum number target range required for overall manning purposes. So despite the shortage, Lieutenant Barclay did sail his unit in search of Oliver Perry's forces. Well, you know, as hard as it is to know that you are shorthanded, and you have not met your quota, you're still going to have to take some risks. You're still going to have to go in search of the enemy, and if it means uh, launching a surprise attack or two on the enemy in terms of something that's small but can catch them off guards, you're going to have to do it. You're just going to have to make do with the numbers that you have. So how many British vessels are going to embark upon searching for Perry's flotilla, a.k.a. fleet? Six. That doesn't seem like a grand number, but that is what's available, and it's just what it is. You have 284. Um, what is two? What's two? Why is the number two and 284 important? Because that's the total number of British crewmen that were listed by ship. 30% of the crew is aboard HMS Detroit. 38% aboard uh, Queen Charlotte. 17% aboard Lady Prevost. 6% are both both aboard General Hunter and Little Belt, and 4% aboard Chippewa. 
Detroit or HMS Detroit is the flagship vessel, being the largest of the crew. I know that sounds strange considering only 30% of the crew are aboard HMS Detroit, and you would think, okay, if 38% are aboard Queen Charlotte, that she would be considered the um, the uh, flagship vessel. But we also have to remember, too, that um, HMS Detroit is the newest flagship vessel, and she is a sloop of war. Uh, Queen Charlotte has been around, but the British want to flaunt uh, HMS Detroit. They want to uh, be able to flaunt her given that she has um, fitted out with some, um, you know, she doesn't have the same set of guns. She, I do remember from a previous podcast episode where we had talked about how uh, Robert Barclay would be um, equipped with um, with a different um, variety of, um, of guns. Um, he got equipped with a, a whole assortment of uh, different size uh, pounders from 18 pounders. Six, nine, uh, twelve. I mean, those are great, but usually when you think of a sloop of war, they usually have the same size uh, cannons, or in other words, like 18-pounders all across. But it just so happens that um, that even in times of um, uncertainty, when you don't get everything that it is that you want for your uh, vessel, you just have to do the best you can to modify the circumstances you're in. Uh, what issues did Commodore Oliver Perry face come uh, mid-July of uh, 1813? The most notable issue had to do with the numbers of men being able to adequately man the vessels. Uh, sailing master uh, Stephen um, Champ, Champlin, I should say, pardon me, Sailing master Stephen Champlin, including 60 men, arrived come mid-July. July 30th, 55 more sailors arrived, but nobody was available, or I should say qualified, to command the flagship vessel Niagara. What made this new group of arrivals, I don't know if I would say if unique is the right word, but what made them different, for better or for worse, they all weren't from one group. In other words, they all weren't from one spectrum of uh, the greater society. They came from all corners. Some were uh, outlaws. And when I think of outlaws, <laughs> I think of um, people that maybe just didn't fit the proper mold. They may have been from a rough crowd of society. But you have um, a group of outlaws whom, I guess it might be fair to say they are desperate for work, and they need somewhere to go in society, and what do you know? They are going to be a part of this, um, part of the uh, greater uh, naval fleet that's going to partake in something uh, very uh, significant that will make history within a short period of time. So you have uh, the outlaws. You have African Americans, folks. You have soldiers, soldiers whom are whom have gone from land now to uh, sea. Young men being boys, or I should say young adults. So we have young men being the boys and adults who could be between the ages of 10 and 15 or between 15 and 20. The new arrivals, all of them came over from Lake Ontario. 10 to 20% of the early United States um, Navy's rank and file folks comprised of African Americans. 
And in the previous winter, there were a large number of African Americans that accompanied Oliver uh, Perry from Newport, Rhode Island to the Great Lakes. And I, I was very impressed by uh, the fact that uh, Perry did have a diverse group of men. Sometimes it's often easy to assume that the men that um, a commander would have, it's easy to assume that they've had, uh, mili- they've had extensive uh, military experience for some period of time. While, yes, some might have extensive military experience, not all do. Is that a good thing? On one hand, maybe it is, but in a time of war, commanders do have to wonder, okay, the men I've been given, are these the right men that God has given me to fight an enemy? George Washington, um, in quotation, well, I don't know if I remember it all in quotes, but I do know that during the um, New York campaign of 1776 that... um, that really challenged the heart and soul of the Continental Army. Uh, there was one particular battle where a group of Connecticut uh, militiamen were running for their lives. Washington was pleading with them to turn back around and fight against the uh, British and the Hessians. And when they still kept running, Washington finally said to himself, Are these the men that God um, gave me to fight against the mightiest uh, military power? I don't know if that was the proper quotation, folks, but that's as close as I can um, nail it. So for Commodore Perry, he is probably asking himself a similar question. I have outlaws, I have African-Americans, and I am familiar with the African-Americans because they did accompany me from Newport, Rhode Island to the Great Lakes. I have young men, young adults, a.k.a. boys, young adults, are these going to be the right men that will um, help me achieve a victory on Lake Erie in the foreseeable future? That is definitely a good question to, um, to be asked. What did Commodore Oliver, Oliver Perry find to be unacceptable about the men uh, from Lake Ontario? He viewed these men as souls whom lacked formal training proper discipline to being non-cleanly. What do you mean by non-cleanly? Well, what I mean, folks, is that these were men whom did not um, take, probably take, they probably did not take good care of themselves from a hygiene standpoint. But, of course, we do have to remember that we don't have such things as modern-day showers and uh, bathtubs back then. But we also do have to take into consideration that if we want to be, that if we want to represent um those above us whom are commanding us, we also need to set a good example for uh, those uh, below us who want to become, you know, naval, um, they want, who want to become midshipmen, they start out in lower rank status and work your way to the top. You know, examples do have to be set. So, okay, we've got men whom lack formal training and proper discipline. Now the, the big question is, how are we going to be able to get them in line? How are we going to be able to get them into a true, formal, cohesive unit that, um, that can operate under some harsh circumstances that aren't going to back down without a fight? But we have to establish guidelines. There has to be some protocol. Even George Washington said that when he came into when he arrived to um, Massachusetts shortly after the Battle of Bunker Hill uh, took place, he the men that he encountered right away were not the most uh, cleanly of men. They 
um, he saw right away that, look, we've got to make some changes, and these changes have to come soon. So uh, right after he arrived into Massachusetts, he was having to come up with all kinds of strategies and um, guidelines for how um, an army was to um, operate, and not just to operate, but how to uh, properly um, operate uh, day in and day out. Commodore Perry, though, was not alone based upon observations involving newly arrived men. However, he does have favorites among the crewmen, most notably uh, an African-American seaman named uh, Cyrus Tiffany, whom went by Old Tiffany. Cyrus Tiffany, folks, served as uh, Perry's personal servant, and I'm not trying to get political here, folks. Uh, Oliver Perry did have respect for this man. Uh, Cyrus Tiffany uh, played uh, the fife, and his uh, presence within the military dated back to the Revolutionary War. He even played the fife for General George Washington in his um, famous tent that is on display at the uh, Museum of the American Revolution in uh, Philadelphia. If you ever get a chance to uh, visit the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, which my wife and I did two summers ago, it is very well worth visiting. You can spend the entire day there. And um, George Washington's tent, which has, been com which has been completely preserved and still remains intact from the time of the American Revolutionary War, can be seen on site at the museum. So, yes, Cyrus Tiffany did play uh, the fife for General Washington inside his tent. Given Perry lacked trained professional seamen, he did go about distributing small printed notices urging volunteers from within the militia to serve until combat with enemy took place. He also went about um, promoting incentives such as sharing in prize money. Perry saw results where he got 60 Pennsylvanians to volunteer or join, resulting in their being qualified to man two of the smaller schooners within the American fleet. He would also get between 56 to 71 volunteers, primarily from Major General David Meade's 1st Brigade, as well as the 16th Pennsylvania Militia that comprised the multiple divisions or multiple division regiments. Additional volunteers helped enable Oliver Perry to sail with, a modified, with modified crew numbers per one small, two large brigs, including five gunboats. Well, folks, even in the most uh, challenging of times, there are ways to modify situations that to us could seem hopeless with no end result in sight. Oliver Perry was on borrowed time, and he took what was a challenging situation and made it into a modified situation where other recruits from within the military came forward and stepped up when it mattered most. August 3rd of 1813, Commodore Isaac Chauncey assigned Lieutenant Jesse Elliott 101 officers and seamen to join Perry on Lake Erie. This would be the last naval group sent over before the battle on Lake Erie began. Perry's forces, folks, are just over 400 men, but even better, he will get an, uh, an arrival of, an addition, of additional men at Sandusky Bay, Sandusky being halfway between Toledo and Cleveland. This led to receiving 
130 soldiers from General William Henry Harrison, whom, whom is currently still at um, Fort Meigs. So this means now, folks, that uh, Oliver Perry would have just over 500 men. He's got probably just around 530 men at most. So, again, he took a situation that didn't really seem to have much hope, but yet he went about um, modifying what was necessary to where he's in a better situation than he was early on. Now, prior to Lieutenant Elliott's forces arriving at Lake Erie, what had Commodore Perry conducted? His naval fleet crossed the sandbar, or what is a, called a ridge of sand, at the uh, river flow, a.k.a. the mouth of Presque Isle Bay. The majority of July saw Robert Barclay and his unit conduct a blockade off Lake Erie with the intent of keeping Perry's naval forces off track. July 31st, saw Robert Barclay uplift the blockade. Wait a minute, why is he uplifting the blockade? Well, I can tell you more here in a short while, but to me, this is a red flag. It's a bad decision. Especially considering that he might have already had some momentum. So if you have momentum, why do you uplift this blockade? It, it, to me, it's it's a ridiculous decision. So he uplifts the blockade, only to return back north into Canada as his ships need resupplying. Okay, if your ships need res resupplying, that's one thing. Maybe send the, to me if I was command if I was Robert Barclay. Why not send the ships that need resupplying the most? Okay, if there are two out of the six ships that really are in need of resupplying, then you send those two ships right away. Maybe send one of the large larger ships to accompany a smaller ship and then come back and then if you know another ship or two is in need of resupplying send them into Canada but keep at least four on site to where they can um, create mayhem for the Americans. Commodore Perry was convinced that Barclay's departure was a ploy or a tactic geared towards luring American forces into trying a crossing. Very well could have been. August 1st, U.S. naval forces went about taking a chance, and they took a successful one by sending many of the smaller vessels over the sandbar and into Lake Erie, resulting in their taking up defensive positions guarding the sandbar. So now they are a step ahead of Barclay's forces. See, Barclay could have um, been the one taking a defensive position by guarding the sandbar. But he's now back in Canada resupplying. What was to have been the average maximum depth of the water covering Presque Isle Bar? I'm sure some of you are wondering, why does this matter? Well, we do have to remember, folks, that not all ships are of the same size. Yes, we have our sloop of wars, being the uh, ships of war. Yes, we have our schooners. We have our brigs. You know, we've got ships of all different sizes. So we do have to be reminded that some ships are going to have a little bit more of a challenging time crossing the, um, the depth, especially if, say, water levels are not adequate. Smaller-sized ships may not have any trouble whatsoever. 
but as for the average maximum depth of the water covering Presque Isle Bar, it was to have been around six feet. Late summer of 1813 sees the depth of of uh, Presque Isle Bay in terms of its water depth, it has dropped to where it stands between four to five feet. So even a change in in a foot of uh, water depth could have a profound impact on the larger ships being the Lawrence and the Niagara. The situation of the problem, though, was modified by shipbuilder Noah Brown, whom devised a system I never heard of, well, I, I know what this uh, term means, but I never heard of it in terms of nautical terms. Camels. Of course, we all know that a camel is an animal with at least two or three humps. Camels are usually found in the Middle East or in, um, or in North Africa. But there is a term for nautical purposes called camels. Wooden floats placed between a vessel and a dock which would enable large ships like the Lawrence and the Niagara to go about crossing over Presque Isle Bar, given that its uh, water depth had dropped at least a foot. So between August 1st and the 4th, sailors were constantly at work with little to no break, making sure that the Lawrence and the Niagara got over the bar. August 4th, Barclay's fleet, primarily the smaller Vessels are engaged in a short skirmish, only to withdraw unexpectedly. Here again, another mistake. Okay, you're, you've already resupplied. Okay, engage in, a short, engage in a short skirmish, but don't retreat back. Keep your forces there. Maybe come next day, engage in something else to harass the enemy. But the bottom line is just, just don't show up one day and leave out of nowhere. And I'm sure some of you are probably wondering, are there other reasons why Robert Barclay did what he did in terms of uplifting this blockade? Well, how about this question that goes with um, what I just mentioned a second ago? Is it fair to say that the Lake Erie campaign was won weeks before the Battle of Putin Bay officially commenced come September 10th of 1813? Uh, turns out, yes, folks. This was largely attributed in part to Ro Lieutenant Robert Barclay not enforcing the blockade. Canadians, uh, primarily from the Western District, historians know that Canadians, primarily from the Western District, have blamed um, Robert Barclay's decision for lifting the blockade based upon social desires, personal social desi desires of his. You know, it's one thing to be a commander, and you need to set a good example for your men that whom serve below you. But is it important at the same time to be placing social desires above above serving your um, men above serving the men below you, and what would be a, a soon what would soon to be an eventual um, battle along the lakes? I think, to me, social desires need to take a, a far distant second. Well, Lieutenant Robert Barclay didn't see this. Historians know, based upon what the Canadians knew from the Western District, that many knew that Robert Barclay um, 
had had a uh, fling, meaning he had a um, off-and-on relationship for a young widow in Port Dover. To staying longer in Port Dover, given a special dinner was to be held in his honor. Well, hey, there's nothing wrong with having a special dinner to be held in your honor. To me, maybe that would be more important than having um, feelings for for a young widow. Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong in being concerned about the well-being of a widow whom has lost her um, significant other. But sometimes if you don't um, recognize your boundaries, then uh, failure to recognize your boundaries can have uh, negative repercussions in other um, settings especially when it comes to um, seizing upon the uh, moment and trying to um, catch the enemy uh, by surprise or to be able to inflict a blow into the enemy to where they may not be able to uh, go head-to-toe with you with regards to engaging in a formal battle. Regardless of the speculation or the circumstances, I should say, many Canadians have had mixed feelings about Barclay's image, most notably during the time uh, that the War of 1812 was going on, and those um, in the years after the War of 1812, even in the present day, many Canadians simply feel that that uh, Robert Barclay may have been a good visionary. In other words, he may have laid out his strategies well to where, okay, this is what needs to be done. But at the same time, Robert Barclay did not carry out his objectives when the opportunities were available. Most notably on the morning of August the 4th, when Barclay's fleet did engage U.S. forces, but he didn't go all out. Yes, he engaged in a skirmish where he, yes, would have uh, harassed the, um, the na- harassed whatever naval ships there were um, available to harass, but he needed to go beyond 101. Had he gone beyond 101, he could have struck a blow to where the United States Navy might not have recovered. But a lot of this also was attributed to deficiency in the number of crews available as well as lacking adequate arms and ammunition. So had... um, Barclay had enough, had he, is, it is fair to say that had he had more men readily available, including more arms and ammunition, then yes, he probably would have um, seen to it that, uh, that striking a blow at Perry's um, forces and uh, Perry's um, flotilla would have been um, absolutely, um, would have been absolutely within the uh, game plan that it would have uh, prevailed. But even if you don't have, even if your number of, even if your overall number of crew isn't where you want it to be, and you still have an opportunity to strike at the enemy, just do it. Don't be making excuses and saying, well, I didn't have enough number of men on me. Well, if you had about 200, just shy of 290, then just go for it. Take what you have available and strike the blow. And even if you didn't achieve everything, you still achieved some things, and achieving some things might be better than nothing. 
Well, it just goes to show you that even the world's mightiest naval, not just naval power, uh, but army power, or I should say military, the world's mightiest military does have its weaknesses. And those weaknesses lie in uh, leadership from the highest levels above. So the United States folks, from the naval standpoint, they are feeling somewhat good knowing that, okay, we might have a fleet that is ready to go. We might not be out of the woods just yet, but we know that, um, that Lieutenant Robert Barclay has just missed some golden opportunities, and now we have the advantage on our side. I think it's fair to say that Rob Oliver Perry's forces are more adequately prepared than Lieutenant Barclay's forces are. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, episode, and uh, when I'm on the air again next, as I said earlier, we will be venturing into uh, part two, being what's called the ordeal of combat. That's what part, the title of part two is all about. But in the uh, chapter that we will be uh, discussing, it will be what's called preliminaries to combat. Preliminary meaning the um, initial beginning stages of, of what will lie to that eventual combat um, that takes place on September 10th of 1813. So uh, when I'm on the air again next, um, we will uh, discuss some things like problems of command. Uh, we will also talk about um, some other things such as... Um, I can tell you right here, like outfitting, practicing, maneuvering. Hopefully we might get to some of that. We might also learn about uh, command, other commanders on both sides. Of course, we have learned uh, some about some other commanders, most notably Jesse Duncan Elliott, whom, um, including Daniel Dobbins, Commodore Isaac Chauncey. But we might also be able to, if the time fits in, to learn about some other British naval commanders besides Robert Harriet Barclay. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air. And wherever you all may live, continue to stay safe and continue to get the word out. Uh, without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, but thank you for being such ardent listeners. Take care and stay safe.